It is time for the Week in IndyCar listener Q&A show here on the Marshall Pruitt podcast. Hey, I'm Marshall Pruitt. What do you know? I named the show after myself. Got to say big thanks to you for all the questions you sent in this week. A lot of them are kind of sort of fun. Huge thank you as well to our pal Tim Falkowitz who puts together the list of questions for me. Got to say thank you finally to Cooper Tires, those wonderful people from Ohio who also make the Road to Indy possible, taking care of all three tiers of the Road to Indy with their tires. Cooper Tires, we thank you. Also want to say big thanks torontomotorsports.com they are doing a lot of fun stuff more fun stuff on the way from them they do all of our t-shirts and you name it just saw some pins that they made uh i don't know what we're gonna do with those uh yeah i have a lot of bad ideas of what we could do with those but all kinds of fun there with t-shirts memorabilia hats stickers if you like f1 indie car sports cars whatever they have at torontomotorsports.com. And then finally, the Justice Brothers, manufacturers of rather amazing automotive chemicals and lubricants. They have been a part of my world since day one in motor racing. Not a joke. Since 1986, when I was a little pup, taking my very first steps in the sport. Yes, was involved with the Justice Brothers back then. So that's the roster of thank yous. Uh, what do we have going on here? We have testing recording this on a Monday evening, so there's testing tomorrow, Tuesday at Barber Motorsports Park, due to speak with brand-new IndyCar driver Romain Groschamp as soon as he is done with that test. Also, his new Dale Coin Racing co-driver, Ed Jones, so they're meant to ring me once they get on the road driving towards the airport. I'm hoping to go down to Laguna Seca next week on Monday for a IndyCar test with multiple teams. That would be a big departure since when I went down to one in November and there were supposed to be multiple teams, there weren't, it was Ganassi. And then just very recently, there were supposed to be multiple teams at Laguna for another test. So it was exciting. It was just Ganassi again. The rest of them bailed. And so at least for what I'm expecting, we should have one entry from Ed Carpenter racing next week. We should have... More than two from Aero McLaren SP, and that excites me. Uh, I, I dare I suggest, I think we might have one of our favorites from all that I do on the show here, whether it's IndyCar, sports cars, you name it, Mr. Juan Montoya, Mr. It Is What It Is. There's rumor that he might be there in a third car, at least getting tuned up a little bit before he does the month of May with Aero McLaren SP. Meyer Shank Racing, we know, thanks to last week's guest, Michael Shank. I don't know why my voice is breaking. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take a sip of a beer so it doesn't break again. Uh, this is New Holland Brewing Company Dragon's Milk Solera. Uh, thanks again to the Day for the stash of amazing beer here. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. That makes my tummy, makes my belly very happy. Meyer Shank Racing. Meant to be there with two cars, Elio Castroneves making his IndyCar debut for the team. And then Roma and Ed are meant to be there with Coin. So in theory, we'll have eight cars at Laguna next week. So that's that. Our man Roger Penske turned 83, I believe, on Saturday. So a belated happy 83rd 
to the Capitan, to Roger. What else can I tell you? A few other things happening in the background. I wouldn't want to pretend that they're majorly exciting that I know of, but eh, a couple little things I'm pursuing. We'll let you know more about that uh, when I can write about them. So let's get going. Got some time to do the show. I don't want to dig myself into the same hole I usually do and say, yeah, we've got X amount of time, and then I go over. So I'm not going to say how long we got, but I'm going to do my best to get to as many questions as I can in that period of time as we have some music bed coming in, which signals we're getting rolling with your Q&A. And we'll just note, as always, if you really want me to get to your question, and I don't, please resubmit it the following week and do the t- both of us a favor, open it with something very hostile because that always catches my attention. Hey, you insert curse words. Uh, you didn't get to it. You better or else I'm going to insert a really good threat. So uh, that's a little note there. Let's start fading out a little bit of music bed and kick the show off with Nathan DeRover. Nathan, how are you, my man? A uh, big thank you to you, Nathan. You're always a very considerate person when it comes to the things that you send into the show or the comments that you provide. Just want to know that I appreciate you. And admittedly, I should extend that to everybody that's listening because there's a lot of you who participate each week. Some like Nathan who uh, jump in when you have time. Others who just lurk. A couple of you who wrote in to say this is my first time. So all together, greatly appreciate you. But we're going to kick it off with Nathan saying, just one question. Are we there yet for a short offseason? This one seems to be taking forever. Brother Nathan and dear listeners of the show, brothers and sisters, fans of IndyCar, I think we need to all say amen to young Mr. DeRover because I've been thinking that and feeling that for probably a month. And I know IndyCar doesn't start at the end of January, so the timing's a little bit off. But at least in my head, I've been right there with you on this. And I'm guessing many of you have been in the same place of like, yeah, okay, so I know the last season went later than usual because of, yeah, some not very happy things that took place in the world. Got it. That's all behind us. Everything's good. Let's go play IndyCar, right? Uh, I mean, again, if we're just thinking about when cars came off track, October 25th, right? I mean, it really wasn't that long ago. But I do find it odd, and I don't have an answer why. It does feel like it's taking forever to get the season going again. I do wonder, is part of this due to the fact that so much of the 2021 grid was locked in place I think really before we got to the new year, if not right around that point in time, I know we've had a couple of recent confirmations, but for the most part, I think it's just felt like the grid is ready to go. Even for some that weren't fully confirmed, we knew where Colton was going to be. We knew where Hinch was going to be. We knew, we knew, we knew lots of things that we knew just feels like this thing's been ready to go for a while, even if it hasn't. And so maybe that's part of the reason you're feeling it, Nathan. I am as well, and I'm guessing many of you are uh, on that same thing as what? We're now still, uh, we're under 
two months to go to the 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 green flag but it's still a ways so that's maybe the other component to this nathan with the season opening race what second weekend in march being pushed back again uh yeah so now instead of having this start in early march then admittedly having to wait a while for things to pick back up but nonetheless having this march start not being a thing that we were expecting to maybe fully hold on to it got moved so that part wasn't a total surprise but it does leave us with a little bit of baggage of okay so here we are in late february and yeah the opening race of the year is april 18th isn't it something like that i forget i maybe i need to print out more schedules <laughs> maybe i've forgotten what's been moved to where but yeah i'm with you so i realize that i am a fortunate monkey in that since the season came to an end i will have been to three tests all here local california so uh certainly haven't been to any in florida or the one happening here at barber asap but yeah, I realize that I'm pretty lucky in that regard, so I can only imagine what it is like for everyone that hasn't seen a car run, hasn't heard it in person, and just felt the general rapture. So, yes, come forward, rapture. We need you. Uh, Jeremiah Morell. How you doing, pal? Please say hello to your wife. Uh, he says, just got home from a weekend trip to Nashville. I will say that the Motor City Grand Prix is already well-promoted. That's great to hear, man. It says billboards are up on I-65 telling folks that the tickets are going on sale this week. Said pre-sales happening now. Feels like good momentum at this point. He also then points out a couple other things that are maybe in contrast to the brand new Motor City Grand Prix. He says Mid-Ohio's website still says ticket information available early 2021. It says surprisingly Barber, which is now the season opener, and it is indeed on Sunday, the 18th of April, says Barber has nothing available yet. Just saying that they will go on sale soon. Similar with St. Pete, early 2021. He asks, are you hearing anything from the series or promoters on fan attendance for these events? Says timeline is starting to look short for some of them. Says yeah, IMS has announced yes on fans, but we still don't know that number as well. I am sure that there are some inklings in place, Jeremiah, on what could happen, what happened, should happen in terms of fan numbers. Uh, and I'm thinking, again, more the upcoming events, not necessarily the mid-season, late-season. I'm going to do a lovely little thing here and highlight your question and pose this to some of the folks who can hopefully provide a little bit more in-depth info and provided i can get enough out of folks to warrant a story i'll put that together and try and get the info out for you and others i'm gonna take another crack at this uh dragon's milk solar it's really good y'all ej also known as ewj 2001 from twitter asks or says james davison posted on instagram that he is running the Indy 500 this season. Do you have any more information to share about his entry? I do not. Uh, I. It's funny. I can reach out to James. Uh, he'll curse at me right away because that's usually how we greet one another with some sort of curse. 
that's I love that. Uh, I don't have anything about this I can ask for sure. I doubt he would say. I will just suggest that if it were to be something that is a little bit of a continuation of what he's done in recent years with Dale Coyne, it wouldn't surprise me, but I would need to find out more directly from some folks who know more than I. I am just trying to think out loud of other teams with available seats. And for what I believe a Dale Coyne seat goes for compared to some of the others, I'm not exactly sure where he would land outside of Coyne. We know that Fleet is running three cars. They've announced Charlie Kimball. And ready, could they be expanding to something beyond what they're planning on doing with Marco Andretti coming back in? That would be a little bit of a surprise. We know Aaron McLaren SP is set with our man Montoya. I have heard nothing from Ganassi to suggest they intend on running more than the four cars. If we scoot down a little bit, we look at Ed Carpenter racing. Is that a place that who knows, maybe possible a fourth? I wouldn't think so, but uh, we'll find out. But yeah, I don't think there's much there. Meyershank Racing isn't running anything. Uh, Peretta Autosport already has their driver. Rahal Letterman Lanigan, of course, Bob always says he'd love to run a third, but it has to add, be a, a positive contribution. I'm not saying that James and a third car wouldn't be, but... Uh, I don't know if the dollar amount that I've heard rumored that RLL wants for an 8500 seat would be within the financial grasp of the partners that have been part of James's most recent 8500 runs. And after that, it's Team Penske. Of course, there's a question coming up in a little bit about uh, Top Gun Racing. Uh, unless there's been a change, I believe they're set on running RC Enerson. Uh, if and when they hit the track. So just looking at things here, right? Ryan Reinbold, of course, who knows if there could be any changes there, but just trying to highlight that while some of the places I've mentioned could be options, EJ, that coin seat does stand out as fairly prime uh, pickings for a guy like James Davison, provided he has the Bird family, Obviously, Rick Ware Racing was a part of his entry last year uh, and a couple of commercial partners as well. So, yeah, uh, if I'm wrong, then, A, that shouldn't be a surprise. That's a pretty common thing, but it feels like that would continue to be his best option. Jordan Darwin, your uh, your question here got a – actually, I, I take that back. Jamie Rowe, you and Jordan Darwin asked similar questions. Jamie, your question got a like from Scott McLaughlin, uh, both asking about rookies and road course points and rookies winning races. Jordan opens with continued prayers for your wife. Thanks, man. Says, I think you discussed Romain Groschon needing a nickname. My mind goes to Romain and Roman. Uh, Guessing fireball would probably come off the wrong way and anything lettuce is blah. Thus, Lee, I think... Noble Roman might be a good one, named after the pizza place that is headquartered in Indy. Uh, wow, you just walked us through a whole bunch of stuff to get there, Jordan. But that's why I appreciate you. Yeah, you never send in the uh, the simple stuff. 
you make my brain work a little bit. Noble Romans. All right. Well, maybe there's a natural Indy 500 Indy road course. Since he's not doing the 500, I should remember that. Maybe that's a natural IMS road course sponsor. I don't know. Uh, let's make it so. Uh, Jordan does ask, with most of the 2021 rookies only running road courses, so his points on the twisty circuits will be the only direct comparison. Who will score the most road course points in 2021? Is that uh, Mr. Seventine Jimmy Johnson, Scotty McV8, or Noble Roman? I would be shocked if it wasn't Scott McLaughlin being named your rookie of the year for sure. Um, yeah, uh, Jimmy has way too much to learn. Uh, I think Roma similar uh, and Scotty, while he certainly doesn't have a ton of circuit knowledge, if you just look at the amount of mileage he has amassed, the fact that he's done one race weekend, although he recently made sure to correct the fact, Oh, Hey, uh, I forgot to, uh, I forgot to turn the ringer off. That's me scheduling a, uh, call with some IndyCar drivers tomorrow. Um, I would say Roma's going to have a lot to learn. Scotty doesn't have a ton of experience more, but he does have enough plus a race weekend. That was a little bit abbreviated in the race itself, but Scotty just feels like a guy who's going to be tuned up and Roma is going to be very quick, but learn lessons and hit things and make mistakes. I would say similar for Jimmy. So I think between the three, uh, all the things that I know of about Scotty tell me that he is going to be the most consistent among the three. Therefore, that's how you get the most road course points. Uh, as for Jamie Rose question, who mentioned that he uh, just went to Toronto Motorsports to order the uh, 1981 Eagle Pepsi Challenger t-shirt logo for Weekend IndyCar. Uh, it says, got to support the sponsors. Thank you, brother. He says, question, do you think any of the 2021 rookies will win a race this year? And if so, which one? He says, me personally, I'll put my money on Scotty McLaughlin. When I read this, Jamie, and I know I'll probably get, you know, uh, a, a thumbs down, an anti-like from uh, Scotty on this. Groshaw actually came to mind first. And I don't think it's because there was anything negative in my mind about Scott. Just the coin team is the master of the unexpected win. They really are. If you look back since they started winning in what, 2009 was it? At Watkins Glen with the big man, Justin Wilson. The vast majority of their victories have not been qualified up front, was in the lead pack, boom, went to the front, won the race, suck it, everybody. Not saying that there haven't been times where they weren't very upfront and doing well, but I'm just saying that if you look back at the handful of wins they have earned, some of them have been crazy random, out of nowhere, exceptional circumstances. That seems to be an area, the surprise, the shock type result, where especially after the big man got that first win, when they've come, they've been a little, there's usually been a little bit of a story with it. And so that's why I think my brain, Jamie, went towards Romain first. And it's not because I don't think Scott could win as well. It's because the team Romain is with 
is in a very special place to be that upset, that crazy out of nowhere result type producer. Not so much a Team Penske thing. And so knowing that Scott is going to have, boy, some heavy hitters to get through on his own team, since Team Penske isn't really known for the, whoa, where did that come from victory? It would have to mean that in his debut season, Scott would be faster than all of his teammates and then outrun all of them and beat them straight up head to head. Of course, there's the percentage chance, small percentage chance that he could have that random type win that a Groschon would pull off. But just on the surface, I don't expect this to be a thing in 2022. I expect Scott to be someone who can race and win no exceptional circumstances. Let's go. Let's get it done. He has that much talent. But if we're just talking of the three, uh, Jimmy Johnson included, I just think the out of left field team, AKA Dale coin racing, they're the ones I'd put my money on. Let's go to Clint Lawnen. Clint says, is the Harding partnership with Steinbrenner over? Clint says, didn't see his name mentioned with the Andretti Steinbrenner Hinch announcement. Spotted that as well, Clint. And as a friend in the public relations business once told me, you don't announce a negative. You don't announce a minus if you have a change. And I'm not saying that's the same template that Andretti works from with their public relations effort, but it's not uncommon for a change like this to happen and for there to be no mention of the thing that changed with the person who's no longer going forward with the team. I have heard nothing to say that Harding will not be involved in anything, uh, but I would say it doesn't surprise me that his name was not mentioned. I know that, as we've discussed on the show many times, as we've written about and others have written about, Mike was certainly one who was having to be very careful with finances, and I'm glad that he and George Steinbrenner were able to continue with Michael Andretti last season as Colton Herter became a full-time driver with Andretti in partnership with Harding and Steinbrenner, but an Andretti driver signed by Michael, part of Michael's team. Not a big surprise to me to now see Colton become a 100% Andretti driver. No co-owners on his number 26 entry that I can recall being listed. And with George Steinbrenner remaining involved with Andretti, now being attached to the Hinch entry, the number 29 Honda. Where would Mike Harding fit in there? I don't know. And so that's why it didn't strike me as a surprise when I saw George's announcement as being co-entrant on Hinch's car and no other names added to it. Does that mean Mike Harding could not become a co-entrant on something else? Of course not. Don't have any insight for you right now. It occurred to me to ask, I'll be really honest, Clint, I lost interest really quickly after that thought flashed through my head because part of me says, all right, it does pique my curiosity a tiny bit, but if there's no mention that he's going to be affiliated with something else or a 
thank you for your time or thank you for the involvement and some sort of parting of farewell mention. Uh, I figure if there was something noteworthy to jump upon, it would have been included or not. So I guess I'll just leave it at that. Um, but if Mike Harding's days of being an IndyCar team owner are truly 100% over, then I would say thanks to him for what he did and for making sure that Gabby Chavez and Colton and, you know, there are some opportunities given here, even if there were some struggles. Um, thanks for all that you did, man, and I hope that he gets to continue partying and have fun at the uh, good old Indy 500 as he did before uh, he became a team co-entrant or team owner. Uh, Let's see, Louise Smith. Hey, Louise, how are you? We've been thinking about you lately. Uh, Hope you are doing well and uh, know that, uh, yeah, losing your husband, fighting cancer, uh, you are a freaking hero and star, Louise Smith. So uh, I hope you know that. And if you don't, uh, let me speak for all of us and say we appreciate you and marvel at you for being such a strong person. Uh, she says, hey, Marshall, what impact, if any, will Romain Groschon's new thing uh, with the F1 Mercedes team happen to be on his IndyCar program? Well, that was just a promise uh, made by Toto Wolf that, hey, if you don't get a chance to have a proper farewell in an F1 car, we would step up for you to do that. Uh, he spoke about that, I believe, yesterday, the day before, that there are talks. This appears like it's going to happen with Mercedes, probably just a run test run somewhere not you know nothing official uh during a formula one race weekend to my knowledge louise but just more of a hey your f1 career long f1 career did not end on your own terms uh, if no one else including your current team which is what toto said at the time uh referring to haas f1 offers to do it for you we will he also added but you know again we will but uh Kind of hoping others will. I don't know if he said that part, but it certainly was implied. To my significant surprise, Louise, his team has not offered, apparently, uh, to put him in a car and let him turn some laps fully healed and at least say farewell to F1 uh, the way he wanted to. So, yeah, looks like Mercedes F1 is doing a good thing. And more details to follow. Uh, Let's see. Let's get to Steve Grinstead and Eric in California. Eric, who runs uh, Open Wheel Racing and IndyCar Racing Facebook group. Uh, Eric says, question, how will the Goodyear takeover of Cooper Tires affect the road to Indy in your podcast? Uh, For those who don't know, news this morning that Goodyear has purchased Cooper. Big news indeed. Easy answer to the first item here from you, Eric, and that is no clue how it might affect or not affect Cooper Tire's involvement as the official tire of the road to Indy. This is one of those things where I would say let's look to Penske Corporation's purchase of the IndyCar Series in Speedway. Did they have a list of 25 things they We're going to change and do differently on day one? No, they did not. And since we are on day one, at least of the public confirmation of this purchase, 
I would say we're probably going to need to do like we did with Penske and others uh, who buy big things that exist and say, we're going to need some time to figure out if there will be any changes. If so, what will they be? Uh, What won't be changed? Truly don't know. Can tell you that for what, about a year now, Goodyear's been talking about wanting to have a bigger presence in road racing. Not saying that that is affiliated with Cooper in any way, just saying that they converted, for example, in Europe, the Dunlop brand, which very rich tradition participating in sports cars, those being rebranded as Goodyear's. It's a company which they own as well. Can't tell you if any of that will happen here in the road to Indy. I think it's just a matter of time, having to wait and see if and what changes might happen. As for how this sale might impact the long-standing relationship between my podcast and Cooper Tires, it's another wait-and-see answer. I hope that there's no changes. I do not desire any changes at all in terms of us no longer working together. That's an obvious statement. But as we do the latter stage of each year, we huddle up and say, hey, uh, is it working? Is it not working? Want to keep working together? What do you think about next year? And thankfully, year after year, uh, our friends at Cooper Tires have said, yes, let's keep doing this. So we will do like we always do, Eric, and have that discussion later in the year. And you'll certainly know, based on what branding you see in the podcast and who I am announcing when we post each show, Steve Grinstead asking a little bit deeper into any changes that might be seen uh, on the IndyCar ladder saying you hope to see a deeper, deeper involvement here. You also say best to me, my wife, and the cats. Wanted to add this in, Steve, because you know the one thing that jumps out here is this. I have throughout my, I don't want to tell you how many years, but if we're talking training series, junior open wheel, I have worked on, been a part of teams with, et cetera, et cetera, whether it's Atlantic, Super V, Indy Lights, Star Mazda, Infinity Pro Series, trying to think what else, USF 2000, a variety there, whether it is Hoosiers, Goodyear's, uh, Firestones, Yokohama's jump out, Hankook, I believe, might be in there somewhere, and Cooper as well. Again, I'm sure I'm forgetting, did I mention Yokohama? I don't remember. But um, at least in my time, working on vehicles that we would just generally lump into the road to Indy type category, I'm guessing I've worked on or I've made use of tires from six, seven, maybe eight different brands. So if there were to be change whether it's a a brand, just simply a rebranding, or who knows what. Again, we'll find out, but at least at this level, the road to indie type level, it's not uncommon. And I'm saying nothing new for those of you who've been around for a while. Uh, For those of you who are newer to the sport, it's not uncommon. It's more uncommon at the top step. When we think about The NTT IndyCar Series, they have a sole partner in Firestone, just like the Road Indy has a sole partner in Cooper Tires. At least on the top tier, 
whether it's F1, NASCAR, IndyCar, etc., it is fairly rare for a short duration of time uh, to take place and then to have a sole tire supplier vendor change and then a short period of time and another one. It's usually pretty long and consistent roads. For the level we're talking about, and thankfully Cooper has been a mainstay now for a good long while, that's been a little bit of the rarity, to be honest, Steve. So that's why I'm hoping nothing changes here because it's a pretty darn good thing. Uh, let's go to Andrew Campbell. Uh, first of all, you close by saying continued prayers for your wife. Thank you, Andrew. Um, we just got home a little while ago from physical therapy, and I can tell you, Mrs. Pruitt, uh, she is a living, breathing form of inspiration that woman is amazing she is i'm just telling you just telling you uh main thing you ask about here i love because it's so out of left field but it's so timely andrew says marshall i hope uh, everything's well at home says last week i learned that dr jim logan was the first african-american in history to enter a car in the indy 500 in the indycar series under the name logan racing says, I am not sure if you've ever talked about him on the podcast, but do you have any stories or other information that you can share with us about him? Great question. Uh, I would not pretend in the least to have known Dr. Logan in any serious way, any serious way whatsoever. But I was there. Uh, when they were doing their best to become an Indy 500 entrant uh, in terms of taking part in the Indy 500. Um, should mention, I haven't seen it in a little while, but I've been made aware that it still exists. Um, their website, I believe it's just loganracing.com. It is an awesome time capsule uh if you haven't pay a visit to loganracing.com because it brings the web feels like from its early days it feels like and i'm just i'm could be totally wrong but it feels like it was made in whatever year it was 2000 and it's just been updated uh, multiple times and kept alive since then so i think that is pretty darn awesome uh who needs a new website when you've got an old one that's what i say um here's what i recall about the program um i know that they what i think indy 500 was their first ambition that is the thing that they wanted to do tried to do uh really tried to make happen first um if I'm wrong, then I apologize. But that's what I remember first for the team. Right or wrong, um, they had something like $7 compared to the bigger established IndyCar teams. And that's not a criticism. That's not trying to be mean or any. That's just saying they came in trying to do big things with just pennies on the dollar by comparison 
to the rest of the IRL teams of that time. I think, I think I have, I think my friend Randy Gibson might have helped them out a little bit. But what I do remember was wandering over uh, during the month of May. I think it was 2000. Yeah, I think I wandered over there in 2000, say hi to a friend or two maybe that uh, was working with the team. And it was just very, very apparent that they had nothing. And I know that I already mentioned that, but I just I want to reiterate, it's one thing to have a general recollection of, wow, this was a team that really was the definition of quadruple underfunded. It's another thing to get up close into the garage and see that, wow, okay, uh, this is an effort that if they if they were to qualify, it would be nothing short of a miracle. Nothing short of a miracle. Because, as I recall, looking at their car, it was a Delara chassis. I don't remember the lineage on it, who owned it before, but it was, it was a used chassis. It just looked tired. And this was only a couple of years into the IRL. So the chassis would have been three years old, maybe four, whatever it was. It just looked tired. And would say that based on the rest of what they were putting together, this was a dream effort. This was a dream that... Dr. Logan had, and he was able to muster the resources to get a car. I think Billy Rowe jumps out as someone who might have been their driver or who was uh, attempting to be their driver at uh, the 2500. Just not a situation that jumps out to me where it was clear they could do anything more then show up and take part in practice. Now, I'll mention this, and it's just out of pure ignorance. I assume that they got out and were on track for something. Um, I don't know if that's the case. I don't genuinely recall if they made it out. I just do remember one of the people working there said that they were short on something. They needed something. It might have been a piece of electronics, something that wasn't crazy expensive, but was just one of those yet another things they needed. I don't think they got out on track for some reason. Um, if I had my, if I had all my books with me here, I could actually pull it open real quick and answer the question, but I'm having to go off memory a little bit. Uh, I remember just saying, okay, uh, it might have been a potentiometer, or it might have, whatever it was. There was some sort of thing that they needed to at least improve their hopes of having a functioning car to go out with. And I remember saying, all right, uh, this is when I was working for Team Extreme uh, in 2000. <clears throat> Worst team I ever worked for. And I will say that even by the month of May, my, uh, my patience had drawn thin. 
And I wasn't too bothered to say, yeah, you know what? <clears throat> we do need it back. Need to put it back in inventory, but here you go. I feel like I might have lent two or three things. That's what stands out. Two or three things. Team didn't know about it. I shouldn't have done it. I should have gone and asked them for permission. This is me being a little bit dickish or roguish or whatever you want to call it. Um, it just seemed like they were so far away from getting to where they wanted to be that I don't know if I ever really thought these parts and pieces were going to get used. Uh, and they were non-critical to our team. You know, these are spares. Could have gone and gotten them if needed uh, in a flash. But just remember this being a situation, Andrew, where the desire to be there for the big race, to make history at the big race, um, at least in 2000, it was beyond their means. Having been in that same place in 98 with the team that I helped run and helped engineer and all that, where we showed up thinking we were good and then had all money sponsorship taken away. I mean, we were truly uh, not as bad off as Logan Racing, but in a similar situation of we have a car, but we don't know if we can actually go out on track uh, with it because we don't have the budget really to do much of anything. So been there. This was just a team, unfortunately. This was just a team, unfortunately, on its attempted debut. Andrew was miles away from being ready. I do seem to recall, and I hope I'm not totally wrong, but I do seem to recall they got out and did a couple races. And provided that's accurate, um, that would be pretty darn awesome. Um where you start yeah i believe they i think they had a sprint car driver or something like that one or two others who uh were, were part of things a little bit uh I, billy rose stands out as someone who might have actually gotten out to do a race uh, with or two with them but I mean, here's the sad thing yes you can take part if you can scrape the money together and have the time to get a car ready which they did just after indy but you still lack the resources unless you have some future amazing driver who can engineer the car as well. Uh, you're still going to be short on all the other things needed to perform. And that's experienced veteran, high caliber engineers, uh, drivers who can reward you and such. And I just don't recall that being part of their story. So, general mindset for when i think of dr logan and his team it's a really cool thing that he wanted to do and ultimately did was never going to be something about having a real competitive presence in the series uh you know knocking down some of the the big names and really showing uh all the skills and capability but he did become the first and i guess that in and of itself is meaningful there's just part of it where you go boy i wish there had been the other part of the story that gains respect at the highest level and that is not only was this the first african-american owned team but they also 
delivered, performed, and did things that were very, very memorable. Um, that, unfortunately, is not part of the narrative that I recall whatsoever. So I would say that is the next step in terms of ownership. Knowing that Dr. Logan was the first, I am hoping that the second African-American team owner in IndyCar will have an outfit that you can say, and went out and made everybody know that they were there because they got to the checkered flag first. Let's go to Senka. 112 from Reddit. Marshall, the other day, I was able to watch Uppity on Netflix. So I think you talked about it previously, and I highly recommend it to others. Uh, Senka, 112, says, As a younger fan, it was great to gain some insight on the careers of some titans like Roush, Pruitt, Hobbs, etc. Uh, that were before my time. Says, so To get pumped for the start of the motorsport season, do you have any recommendations for racing, including IndyCar documentaries? That are a must watch without a doubt uh, i would say please watch and i apologize if i don't remember all the names of the exact whatever the exact names are of these things scott dixon's documentary uh that was beautifully done i would absolutely check that out there's another one called gentleman racers that a friend of mine was a part of producing that an interesting look into the non-celebrated side of racing drivers, and that is the amateur driver competing in professional motorsports. This being four folks, uh, and I'm forgetting all their names who took part in the documentary. One of them's a friend, local friend, uh, Mike Wash, a driver that I used to run back in the day. But I think you might find that interesting simply because the drivers that are covered are, again, not the pros, not the ones putting the thing, you know, new lap record type pole positions. Uh, you get to learn a little bit about their lives as business people, the pressures and responsibilities outside of racing that are different uh, from what a professional driver experiences. And I think that in this documentary, Gentlemen Drivers, I believe it's called, Gentlemen racers, again, I'm sorry if I'm getting it wrong. Um, it it provides, a, I would say, a pretty interesting look in a strange type thing where you go, but you're not a pro racer, but you're in racing? Okay, well, that's cool. Um, let's see, what else comes to mind? If you've never seen Super Speedway, that's definitely an IndyCar one, uh, it was a big IMAX feature, and I know that for many of us, who haven't been to a movie theater in a very long time, uh, saying that it is a uh, IMAX movie might not mean much, but that I would say very beautifully done. I would watch that for sure. Uh, let me see what else comes to mind. Things that I've, I mean, I've seen many, 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 and that's why I'm struggling to have any jump out right on top of my head. Um, yes, yeah, so. Andrew Marriott, the racing reporter and pit lane reporter for a very long time, one of the most beautifully done and highest quality 
just presentationally, like, wow, the aesthetics of the documentary are amazing. Plus the story uh, was uh, Steve McQueen, The Man in Le Mans. Wow, that one was just stellar. I would watch that for sure. Uh, what else? Documentary about Bruce McLaren, named McLaren. I would uh, check that out for sure. I think on Netflix as well, it should still be their uh, Williams documentary. That's a, boy, that is a nuanced piece of film. And I would say that the fact that it centers on their history, but also their present at the time, just a couple of years ago, where the team is taking a pretty big nosedive. The pressures and stresses felt by Frank Williams' daughter, Claire, who was running the team. Uh, boy, it's, it's more than just race cars, history, colors, sounds, the end. Uh, there's a lot of stuff going on there. I think you might... I think you might enjoy that one for more than just maybe what it feels like it's going to be. I've only just started watching the first little bit and had to stop on uh, Beyond Driven. It's a new documentary centered on women in racing, but centered mostly on Lella Lombardi. Um, that's one that I can't recommend it because I haven't gotten to the end of it by any means, but I've just started watching that, and that seems like a, a pretty darn good piece of film. Last one or two that jump out. Uh, what? The Amazing Book. Tommy Burns' autobiography, Crash and Burn. That is now a documentary. That is a fascinating watch. If you haven't, uh, yeah, that is a guy. <laughs> that is a guy who had all the talent and wasn't necessarily primed for what it took to get everything out of that talent. But it it's raw, and it is, I think, that of all that I've recommended might be the holy cow, I'm not going to forget that one type racing documentary. Uh, the last one I'll mention, um, and it's certainly not the last one out there, but just the last one that comes to mind, and I hesitate to paint it as a straight documentary and that is the film Senna that came out 10, 11 years ago. Senna, one of my absolute heroes uh, from, I think, his Formula 3 season, uh, title-winning season uh, in 83 onward. I mean, I lived and breathed Senna, even though I was an IndyCar guy and all kinds of other stuff. I mean, it just, yeah, that was my guy. And so the documentary, air, I'm using air quotes here, the documentary is gorgeous, lush. It is, again, cinematic. Yeah, I don't even want to, I was about to use a couple words that were a little bit adult, but glorious in terms of just what you're watching, the style, right, how all the, quotes that are offered all the voices that are speaking are on camera the the voices the comments are all underneath other footage just right it is beautifully done it's also not what i would call a documentary um some of you have heard me mention this before so i'll keep it short but uh amazing driver one of the greatest to ever live in any form of racing period 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 
this was fan fiction almost. Uh, as I came to learn a lot of the things that were made available to the folks that made the movie came from the Senna family, meaning in order to do this, the Senna family had to say yes to a lot of things. And as I've been told, the Senna family also said, well, cool. Uh, we're also going to need a lot of involvement and approval on what gets shown. And so as a result, provided all that's accurate, whether it is or isn't, doesn't matter. What is shown is the most flattering portrayal of Ayrton Senna, which is immensely saddening because he was one of the most flawed all-time greats of all time. And one of the things that made him so fascinating were all of the contradictions and peculiarities and all the things that made him a great there were things that were working against him in his own mind and his own behaviors. There are so many things where you go, whoa, this should be an amazing documentary. And all the things that were unsavory, all the things that were unclean, were wiped away as if they never existed. And it's so sad because what are the best parts of these kinds of films? It is the... Ah, yeah, it's a little dark. Ah, it's a little screwed up. Oh, okay. Well, how did how did you work through that to then achieve this great thing you're known for and whatever it is in life? These are the gritty, relatable things. And the thing that I hate about this is for those who didn't know Senna much or maybe born at a time where didn't know Senna at all, who watched this, will come away with a patently false impression of who the man was, almost saintly. And that, of course, is not real for anyone. Uh, so, yeah, watch it. Enjoy it for all the amazing things about it. Just take note that anytime you get to something and it concludes in that part of the air quote documentary where you go, wow, uh, that bad guy was really painted as the bad guy and oh so evil and Ayrton on the other side well he's just a child of God and all good whenever you see those situations just know yeah wasn't really the case in many of the instances so those are the ones that come to mind and as we often do on the show here to the rest of you dear listeners since Senka 112 from Reddit has asked if you have other racing documentaries that you like and want to recommend, um, respond to Facebook, Twitter, or Reddit thread and share it with him or her and the rest of us. Joey of the Priuses, you transition to a topic that I would say is not my favorite um, and didn't know that it was going to be not my favorite when you sent it in, but you ask. Fatboy Racing confirmed yesterday that they won't be racing an Indy Pro 2000 this year. Do you know if they're moving up to Indy Lights like their goal was, or are they off the road to Indy altogether? Yeah. So texted with our pal, Brendan Peterbach, the man who is Fatboy Racing, uh, they're done. Uh, I don't know if there will be a return at some point in time in the future, but they are done. Uh, they're 
the association, the link that they've had for however many years with Charles Finelli, that is no longer linked. And it's not my place to get into the reason why, because it was a little bit deeper than just a, here's a fully on the record answer that you would use. It was just a lot of the background, but yeah, um, ain't happening. Uh, the lights car that Charles bought, I don't have any real details on that, but I am not totally sure if his desire to go lights racing is something that the series has signed off on yet. So yeah, but very quick answer to this. I hope someone else says, Hey, fat boy racing, uh, let's go race together because we need team fun on the road to Indy. Daniel Summerskill, how you doing, my man? I'm going to take another sip of this fine dragon's milk. I was about to call it mother's milk. That would have been disturbing. Dragon's milk, Solera. A resubmission. It says, Logan Sargent, the American Logan Sargent, nearly missed out on the FI Formula 3 title at the final round to finish third in the standings. However, lack of funding seems to have brought his progression. The FIA ladder to Formula 1 to halt. This is what are the chances we could see him on the road to Indy instead? Great question, Daniel. I'm aware that his family, uh, and I'm not saying it's his money, but it might be more on the grandparent level or who knows, but uh, that is a family that certainly has more than ample funding to run if they wanted to make it available. It would appear uh, to fund Logan in road to Indy, Indy car, you name it, uh, if those funds were made available. Would say that the odds of him landing in something really, I mean, the only level of road to Indy that stands out for me that would make sense for him would be Indy Lights, right? With what he's shown in Formula 3, Formula 3 being more or less directly equitable to what we have in Indy Pro 2000, the only place would be to go up to Indy Lights, we're talking, we'll just say a million bucks. Um, I don't know if there are many places left for him to land. I think Ricardo Junkos might have a seat that's still available. There could be some other opportunities. I'll just share this because I don't know if it answers the question exactly, but um, our racers Formula One reporter Chris Medland uh, reached out with this before he filed the stories here, whatever it was a week or two ago said, Hey, I gave him your number, told him to give you a ring said, you know, you might be able to point him towards a couple of things you know about. And I said, great. We'll look forward to his call. Haven't received a call. So nothing happening there, but I think I figured out a pretty interesting way for him to be in a amazing Indy lights car and have a plan to get to IndyCar within one, two to three years. Spoke with a team owner who I thought might be able to put all that together. Team owner said he'd think about it and said he doesn't have Logan's number directly, but he could probably get a hold of it. I don't know if anything's happened there. I know that if he were to call, I would at least share with him the thought that I had on how he might be able to turn his career around. If none of those things happen, I've heard that he has an interest in IMSA, although he doesn't really. But if that's all that he could do, that he might do that. Um, I don't know. Uh, he's not a driver that, beyond the general name that some folks might have heard, not a guy that the average IndyCar team owner is like, oh, yeah, 
know him plenty. So he'd also be wise to consider reaching out to some of the PR folks who look after IndyCar teams and, you know, inquire if and how they might be able to help him to grow his name and build a little bit of interest in doing something. So, yeah, can't tell you if anything will come of it, but thought I had a slightly smart idea on how he might get his career on track here in North America. Where are we going next? Bill Gray says, so Top Gun Racing finally found two tubs. Says it still feels like the chances of them ever lining up on the grid are below 50%. Do you have any updates to share in your favorite team? (laughs) I don't, Bill. Uh, I should reach out to Bill Throckmorton, uh, who's half of Top Gun Racing, who I would refer to as the serious half of Top Gun Racing, um, and see if and how things are coming along. Um, I mean, seriously, I wish them and any other potential IndyCar entrant uh, well and hope that all things happen for them. I know that last year was a little bit weird, but uh, yeah, should reach out to Bill and see if there's anything significant developing. Um, Significant meaning a lot of folks have tubs. Not everybody goes racing with them, so having tubs does not equal going racing. I just hope that something along those lines come together. I don't recall who asked, and it might be below the cutoff line, so I apologize. Someone asked if I knew how many Delara chassis exist, Delara DW12s exist, and I can't tell you if this is the exact number, if more have been made uh, since then, but I do know that as I wrote about, what, a couple months ago, Ray Hall, Letterman, Lanigan Racing, their Indy 500 winning chassis from August with Takuma Sato, uh, headed to the Honda Museum in Japan. So they are going to buy a knee, a knee sure, or a new DW12 uh, for Takuma and also a new one for Graham, his teammate Graham Ray Hall as well, and build up those two. I know that team manager Ricardo Nolt told me that Takuma's chassis is IR12066. So is Graham's 67 or 65? I don't know. Uh, And have any more been purchased since late last year? I don't know. But it seems like, yeah, mid to high 60s is where I would put that number. And I apologize for not having who asked that. Right in front of me. Uh, let's see. Where do we go next? Jamie Carr says, I think I asked this or something similar uh, before regarding the new car, new chassis, whenever it comes. He says, would there be value to the teams, manufacturers, and fans to make the spec cars look different for each manufacturer? Is it even possible to make cosmetic changes that do not affect performance? Says hashtag me personally, even something as simple as the hashtag front nose uh, for all Hondas are painted red or uh, even program the LED panels to display the manufacturer's logo. I think it would help promote the manufacturers. Uh, and as always, best to you and your wife. Thank you, Jamie. Should also mention, I think you spelled uh, manufacturers about three or four different ways. So that's awesome. Variety is good there. See, just like you want to be able to spot the difference between the 
engine manufacturers. You also make it easy to spot different ways to spell manufacturer. Uh, the arrow side gets a little, that gets to be a little bit tough. That's why I don't think we're going to see that, that we had with the manufacturer arrow kits. They were easily discernible. If you knew what you were looking at, uh, if you didn't, maybe not so easy, but you could still say, oh, well, there's something on the Chevy there that isn't on the Honda in that same spot. Uh, even if I don't know which one's a Chevy or a Honda, I can tell those two are different. I I think going to cosmetic bodywork changes just for the sake of differentiation, I think that might be a little bit too much in terms of questions of performance being truly equal and so on. I mean, what the what comes to mind is that the very first Speedway test or first day of practice, if one manufacturer is faster than the other by any kind of amount, there's just going to be complaints that, oh, it must be the non-required aero parts and pieces on our car just to tell our brand from the other brand. So I don't think that's really a, a route to go. Uh, since Honda doesn't own the cars, uh, I don't know if IndyCar can tell teams how to paint them and where to paint them. Um, that I don't think teams would agree to. <clears throat> but I do like the idea of some form of standardized, hey, you guys go here and you guys go there with your logos. Now, that being said, that is not a totally whatever thing that doesn't happen today. If you were to look on the Hondas on the engine cover, you will tend to see some form of Honda or Honda Performance Development badging. If you look at the Chevys, you will see large bow ties in fairly consistent areas. I guess the bigger question here is, are there is there another way to do this where you know that there's a bit of a uniform thing that says, okay, we've chosen a spot on both cars uh, where if you look here, you'll know it's this, and if you look there, you'll know it's that. And if the brands want to, in their contracts with their teams, provided the teams agree, put additional logos here, there, or wherever else, and again, the something on the nose of the car, a Honda badge, a Chevy bow tie, Again, that I would just consider to be a bit normal. I'm not necessarily talking about that. I'm talking about the, oh, no matter what we do, these are the ways where we can always tell one brand from the other based on specific places. They already do that to, a, a, I would say, a pretty darn good degree, Jamie, but is there more that could be done? I don't know. Uh, could there be a uniform addition to the cars? I mean, 25 years ago, 26 years ago, whenever it was, when the first little ducktail fins started popping up on engine covers, is that something where, you know, that appears on the next car or who knows what, where specifically this is just there, both, everyone has to run it, right? So there's no difference from one brand to the other. Here's something we've added to the car. It's pure cosmetics, but it's just simply for the brands to fly their proverbial flag. So you always know that in this place, that is what stands out 
just to tell you which brand it is. I think there might be something there to consider um, if we think they're not already doing a good enough job. Going to take another sip. There aren't a lot of sips left in good old Dragon's Milk Solera here. Let me rattle through a couple more, then get to a block on tech, which I'm loving that of late we're getting blocks of questions on the technology and engineering and power plant or whatever side. Stephen kills Donk. Stephen, how are you? Marshall, best wishes to you and Chabrell. Thanks, man. Says when and why did teams stop changing rear wing gurney flaps on pit stops? Was it a regulation change or a product of IRL rules requiring minimum wing angles and gurney sizes? Says correct me if I'm wrong, but on the new body work, the uh, Universal Aero Kit 2018, they're bolted onto the wing. Correct, bolted in place. I I I I I don't recall exactly why this option was taken away. But I do recall, and it seemed to not work that often or easily as necessary, that the previous generation chassis was designed with a little flap that you could lift up on the rear wing and slide the wickers, the gurney flaps, in and out during a pit stop, uh, during practice, during whatever. Again, I recall infrequent use of this option in races it seemed to be more of a desperation thing uh if you think about the amount of time it takes to do a hot pit stop uh whether it's four tires and fuel or whatever it's not many seconds (laughs) so if you think about the car comes to a stop flip open the little window try and reach and pull it out pull the one that's in out then align the new one in place, push it in, and get going again. And there's limited numbers of people out over the wall. This just, it was an option that I recall seeing used when cars were diabolical. So in a hot competitive pit stop, green flag pit stop, I'm struggling to recall instances where I saw this used through 2011 not saying it didn't happen i'm just saying i'm not remembering them where i do recall this happening would be more under a caution and hey we're having a bad day as it is we're running towards the back we're going to take a moment try and help the balance in ways that just adjusting the front wing angles or tire pressures uh, hasn't addressed we're going to forfeit some positions and take a moment to just make a proper rear gurney change during the pit stop. So usually under yellow, going to lose as a result. We're going to lose time doing this, but it's so bad we got to do it. I'm struggling to recall any instances, Stephen, where it was like, oh, we're in second place. (laughs) And if we just had a little bit more rear downforce or a little bit less, uh, that's going to make the difference. So we're going to roll the dice, lose a bunch of time, and then hopefully claw it all back. I don't really remember that happening. Final note here, and this was the thing which I believe is the reason that prevented this from becoming an actively changed thing in competition, is 
I don't know if you, you lube them up. I don't know if you use a lot of JB80 spray it all over everywhere to try and make them slide in and out easily. But I just recall that, yeah, whether it was having to fight to get them out or struggling to get the new one to slide in, um, it sounded like a great idea to be able to do this. But the real world ability to do it never matched. So I think that's the other reason why you just didn't see much of it um, in competition, you know, while uh, between green and checkered flags. So, yeah, during practice and when you're sitting on pit lane for a little bit, not a big deal. Great, thank you. That's easy. But, yeah, uh, probably for some of the aforementioned reasons here, I'm guessing that's maybe a reason why we didn't see it carried over to the new chassis. Uh, St. Aubin. Asks Marshall, when you were a crew member, did you have a specialty you were good at? <laughs> this is the reason why I'm so thankful I don't have all the people that I worked for on the podcast because they would be laughing even harder. Uh, was there anything I was good at? I don't know, man. I mean, I, I've never considered myself to be particularly, you know, I'm, I've been good at many things, never great. So, I mean, I guess, yeah, I was good at many things, but yeah, not really stand out. The management side, I thought I was pretty good at. Uh, I probably went through the same arc that a lot of people in racing have who've been doing it for a long time. Start out at the bottom, you know, washing things, wiping things off, picking things up, putting them down, carrying things around, like just as manual labor as you get. Then you get trusted to do a little bit more. People let you use the hand tools, and next thing you can tighten things on a car, take them off or whatever. And, you know, you wander down the mechanics path. Then you learn a little bit more about the setup and engineering side. So did that, uh, race engineering, which is great, uh, building dampers and dynoing them and doing that. That was great and a lot of fun. And then management, team management and so on. And so got a chance to do those things, um, I would say of the things that I did, it's probably the management that, again, I'm, I'm sure those that I worked with where I was in a managerial role are laughing right now. Uh, I think that might have been the area where I was best at, and the reason for that would be for the majority of the teams where I was in a managerial role, it was a case of being a small team, not having enough money, enough resources to have an ample amount of people on the team. And so I think what I was pretty good at out of necessity, but also learning a lot. Um, this is something where you say, okay, cool. I'm going to help run the team and help engineer and help this and help that and be involved in a lot of areas. And so working with smaller teams, IndyCar, Road to Indy, you name it, having some form of ability to help run the production, team manager type stuff, I feel like that's where I was able to do my best work. And because it came down to making the most out of not a lot, uh, whether it is putting together sponsor proposals and pitching things, uh, whether it was taking crew shirts and having them embroidered, uh, I mean, a lot of these things are not glamorous, but 
the ability to do the high level, low level and mid level stuff and just consider it all part of the same job. I think I was pretty good at that. Um, the stuff that I love most, probably the engineering, because you can at least look at the vehicle and say, Hey, it's going fast or slow. And I have a direct impact in that as a mechanic. You obviously want the car to be as solid and safe and fast as possible. But if all the mechanics are doing a very good job, you're not going to see a massive difference in on-track performance. The engineering side, where you can get it as wrong as you can write, that had a little bit more of an individualistic feel. And so I think I really enjoyed that too because uh, it came with more responsibility. And I don't know if I ever liked the spotlight uh, it, the, I, yeah, I never felt comfortable with that and I didn't have much, so I'm not pretending like there was, but, um, I just enjoyed that because it felt like there was, <laughs> there was a more direct connection with the vehicle and the things that I uh, really love about racing, which is making speed. So those are the things that come to mind here. Where else shall we go next? I would say... I would say we're going to go to Jerry Robert Sudduth. Your talk about grip last week got me thinking what permanent road course or oval has the most grip and which has the least. Uh, boy, I don't know on the oval oval part um, just because we don't go to many today. And I'm yeah, that one I'm struggling with a little bit. If we're talking about most and least on road course, I'd say Barber is probably highest still since it was very recently repaved. I don't know if you'd find a driver that said Laguna Seca, my home track, uh, is anything other than uh, the winner of the least competition. So, yeah, there's that. Uh, Stuart Arith, you say, hey, Marshall, uh, you're resubmitting a question. Um, I saw an interview with Paul Stoddart, former owner of the Minardi USA champ car team also f1 team entrant as well says saw an interview with paul stoddart recently and briefly mentioned the 2007 cart season uh, champ car season in the minardi usa team and his commitment to that series after the uh, sale of the minardi f1 team to red bull he says uh what happened and why did they not come over to the indycar series with the other champ car teams after unification in 2008. Yeah, they were really good in 2007. Uh, good old uh, Bobby Doorknobs, a.k.a. Robert Dornbosch, uh, being their driver. I think they finished third in the standing, something like that. Certain race engineer by the name of Michael Cannon. Hello, Michael Cannon. Uh, he and Bobby Doorknobs did some good work together for sure. As I recall... We are talking about uh, something where I don't believe that there was a real interest in moving over. I think it might be as simple as that. Now, granted, there's always some other angle that I don't know about that's discussed and so on, but I just don't recall there being a lot of momentum for uh, Stoddart to continue in IndyCar when Champ Car folded. I know I've heard stuff about, you know, concern that being one of the smaller teams, although performing well in Champ Car, that they would be able to adequately compete against the Penske's, Ganassi's, Andretti's, and so on. 
they were never known for being a wealthy team. So there's probably a little bit of something to that. But I do know that, you know, what, half of that program, or it could have been even more, but Keith Wiggins, um, he left, and the HVM team uh, existed. Uh, HVM, that being where Simona De Silvestro got her start in IndyCar. Uh, I just wonder if the infrastructure behind the team is also something that maybe, I don't want to say fell apart, but... I think once there was an inkling from Stoddart that there wasn't a interest in making the move from Champ Car to the IndyCar series, that I think that there might have been a pretty quick decision by others within the program to say, cool, well, we are, and off they went. Now, uh, of course, again, I'm sure that there's more to the story, but that's at least uh, the part of the story that I seem to recall. Uh, David Barker, Kevin Prez, Frederico, let's see. David says, in August, uh, Motorsports Games said they were looking into making an IndyCar game. Um, says, since then, I haven't seen or heard anything. Just wondering if there's anything being done outside of iRacing and eSports by IndyCar. I don't know. Whenever I ask about this, I get non-committal answers. So I like the fact, David, that I have a show where all of you send in great questions. I dislike the fact that Sometimes when I ask for info about the topics you ask about, I get kind of fuzzy responses. This is an area where they tend to be a bit fuzzy. Uh, Kevin Perez Frederico adds a bit of fun to close the topic here. Says, MP, at this point, which is better odds of happening? A third IndyCar engine manufacturer or an official series video game? Uh, I'm looking forward to welcoming that manufacturer coming into the series, Kev. Okay, we're going to get into a block here of technical questions. Then I think we might have one or two more, uh, just a short amount more, and then we're going to say farewell. And we're creeping up on a approximate amount of time in the show where I try and shut her down. Oh, that beer is so good. Going to kick off the tech Q&A from our pal Hrishi Deshpond. So this is continuing last week's tech theme. Is IndyCar looking to open up other areas of the engine in the new engine formula, i.e. variable valve timing, variable valve lift, variable geometry turbos, anti-lag, etc.? I've not heard about any of these things, Hrishi. I will pose this question to the series. Giving a very general answer here, realize that I could be wrong. I hope I'm wrong. In the mindset that I've been given when I've asked about, hey, next engine formula, what are we doing? What, what's, what's the thing? It's been probably the mantra you've heard chanted a few times already. Bigger, faster, louder, etc. Slightly larger displacement, we know about that. A chance for manufacturers to start from a clean sheet of paper, that's great. That's where power is going to come from, and a lot of new opportunities here with new ideas brought in. What I have not heard, and I fear, Hrishi, that when I ask I will probably be told no, is all the things you've mentioned and more. Things where you go, hey, these are things technologies you will find in 
not like crazy unobtainium supercars that cost a billion dollars a piece, but like, Hey, you know, you spend 35 grand, 30 grand, 40 grand on a decent car and they might have these things in them. Um, a lot of those forms of technology, I have not heard that there's an intent for that to be part of the 2023 formula. So a question yet again, that uh, I will need to get confirmation on, but uh, don't be upset if you don't get a lot of yeses. Uh, Tom Ross says, Marshall, long time reader, short time listener, first time questioner. Awesome, Tom. Thanks for sending this in. He says, yet another third manufacturer question. Has anyone made overtures to Toyota? Says our global company, strong presence in racing. They have a dedicated racing division in TRD. Strong history with hybrids. Uh, so that's already an area of relevance. Uh, they have experience in open wheel with both CART and F1. Currently involved in the American racing world in NASCAR. So they understand the value of racing as a marketing tool. And they claim to be making an effort to make cars, uh, their cars more exciting. Uh, it says best wishes and strength to you, Rocky Rosie, and of course, your absolute rock star wife. Thank you, Tom. For a first submission, you are getting thousand percent and double thumbs up that is perfection on all levels well i'd say the overtures have certainly been made let me give you a little bit of a left field answer on why i don't think anything's happening here of the many oddball stories that i want to do have written down to do intend to do one of them is about is a retro Toyota cart indie car story. Cool little thing. I don't think I remember it at the time, but it was brought to light to me by a reader or listener, maybe, maybe both. Uh, but this is something that I've been pursuing for a little bit. Again, it's not a huge, it's just telling an older story, but an older tech story that like, wow, okay, cool. Part of that is wanting to talk to some of those who were around at that time at Toyota. And so TRD, so reached out saying, hey, uh, would love to talk to this person specifically about this. And got back the most polite uh, decline <laughs> you could ask for. And the general note was uh, really just wanting to look forward to what we're doing today and in the future in racing and not really interested in uh, going backwards and talking about um the old stuff we aren't doing anymore. Um, I took that as, okay, that tells me mindset. Separately, have an interview that I've yet to put up. Uh, I frankly just did it on Friday, but I will get it up here shortly and talking with uh, TRD about sports car stuff. And they are fully committed to sports cars. Now keep in mind, Toyota also has its luxury sub-brand Lexus that competes in IMSA. You have Toyota competing in NASCAR. Um, I don't foresee anything here, Tom, that leads me to believe Toyota is going to compete in a third major North American motor racing series. Noting that NASCAR is certainly bigger than IndyCar in terms of fan count and TV ratings. IMSA certainly is not, although they can flirt with IndyCar-level fans and ratings on occasion, but would say that 
with NASCAR heading towards a hybrid here, there will be a hybrid in not too far away down the road. All of a sudden, every kind of box they would want to tick being a part of the biggest series, which they have been for a long time, but being a part of the biggest series and now having hybrid as part of that being involved in sports cars, racing with their luxury slash performance brand and really selling the performance narrative that seems to tick all the boxes for Toyota, which is why I would be shocked if they came in as the third. Now, if we were to learn, and I'm not saying this is going to happen, this isn't me hinting at something that I know. Again, just just if they were to say, hey, we're done with NASCAR, I could see them saying, we'll go to IndyCar. If they say we're done in IMSA, I could maybe see a stronger argument for IndyCar. The fact that they're in two out of the big three tells me, yeah, there's no real reason for them to do more than they already are. There's only one example of one brand that is actually ticking all three boxes. And that is, well, I said brand, but General Motors overall, and that is Chevrolet NASCAR, Chevrolet IMSA in GT Le Mans, and also Cadillac in their top prototype category. Plus, obviously, uh, Chevy and IndyCar. They're the only brand doing it. Honda, IMSA, IndyCar, no NASCAR, Toyota, NASCAR, IMSA, no IndyCar. I've just heard nothing to suggest that open wheel is where they're looking to go. And knowing that there's going to be that hybrid option coming to NASCAR, I think that really makes it a hard argument to say we got to go over to IndyCar where they're going to be hybrid or even IMSA where they're going to be hybrid. So makes perfect sense to us as fans, Tom, right? That's the thing. We can justify any brand being an IndyCar <laughs> or whatever series that we like. We can come up with every reason why they should. Sadly, manufacturers don't always call us and ask and have us explain why and then say, oh, you're right. I don't know what we were thinking. Got to do it. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Getting down here to the end, Bob Gravel says, when can we expect Honda and Chevy to produce one of the uh, the new engines? And uh, after that, when will it likely be in a car for testing? I would say, Bob, that I'd be very surprised if at least one of those two brands doesn't already have a test mule up and running. As for when it would fire into a car, great question. Um, I'm going to highlight your submission here, and uh, I'll ask that latter question next chance that I get to one of the two brand representatives. Representatives? Sure. Uh, and see if they answer. Uh, going to close here on the tech topic in this group. Stitch Turner says, I think I've figured it out. IndyCar is introducing new motors to improve the harmonic vibrations for the much-anticipated return of LED panels. You got it, Stitch. That's the only reason. Now, just don't let Chevy or Honda know that they're going to spend tens of millions of dollars just so IndyCar could get the LED panels back and get rid of the uh, harmonic vibrations that were killing them with an 2.2 liter turbos we have now that's the reason we're going to the 2.4 again just keep this between us all right we are a little bit over an hour and a half 
where do we go? Are there any others that we go to right now? Or do I say, hey, uh, we need to send this in again next week uh, for next week's show. If you really want me to get to them, send them back in. Uh, We've got some comments about Jimmy Johnson's new livery looking like Oliver Askew's from last year. Yeah, I can see some of it, but I don't necessarily see all of it. There's some folks who are a little bit grumpy over that. Uh, Let's see. Pat O'Day uh, says, a couple questions. Who pays for driver's fire suits? Is it part of the contract with the team? How many do they get or use per season? Uh, All depends, right? Some drivers are hired by teams. Some drivers pay teams. Some drivers have direct deals. Some teams have direct deals with uh, fire suit manufacturers. Some don't. So I would say in most instances, they are provided. Uh, they are, quote, sponsored items, whether it's through the team or directly with the driver. In a couple of select cases, I would say they would be bought uh, by the drivers. But, yeah, I don't think that happens so much anymore. Even if it's a driver doing a one-off, like, say, the Indy 500, it's those kinds of things that tend to be written into a contract. Even if the driver is bringing all the sponsorship. This would be one of those things where, like, look, <laughs> I need to focus on being a driver, not going out and chasing down a suit and making sure it has all the right patches or, you know, everything that is either embroidered on it or uh, baked onto it. Um, this is something I expect the team to look after. Even though I'm paying for it, it's your responsibility. Uh, as for how many per season, I mean, uh, for what I know, two to three is not uncommon. Uh, if there's more, I would say there's some personal hygiene problems. Uh, you mentioned RV spots, uh, and you're asking whether those are rented by drivers uh, or given to drivers. Um, again, all depends. One of my favorite stories I've mentioned a couple times in the past was uh, the Franchitti brothers, Dario Franchitti competing at Petit Le Mans, I think it was 2008, maybe 2009, and the track wanted to charge him something like $5,000 to park his motor coach there for a week or whatever it was. And now it wasn't just him. That was kind of the going rate that they were trying to uh, take off of people. $5,000 for five days or whatever it was. Um, and basically saying, uh, nah, man, uh, come up with something else I can do for you. You want me to sign some autographs? You want me to do a little appearance? Cool, but I'm not giving you five grand to just park on a hill for five days. Um, so, yeah, uh, usually those things do come out of pocket, though. Uh, the smarter drivers will trade services or trade something with a track to make those bills go away. Um, so, yeah, uh, but again, one of those things all depends where else do we go? Uh, Clay Williams, you have a question about uh, Richmond and whether that might come back. That is on my list. Again, I got a lot of questions that I am looking forward to asking, see what I get for an answer. Uh, Nick Smith, you're the one. Oh, and you say your first time questioner, by the way. I apologize, Nick. You're the one who asked about how many DW12 chassis would have been made. So, yeah, hopefully answered that just a little bit. Um uh, you ask about our teams regularly getting thing getting shipping containers uh, from Delara and whatnot. Keep in mind that Delara USA is based in Speedway, Indiana, so uh, they do produce some things there, not tubs. Those are pretty darn big. Um, but yeah, uh, 
all things I believe kind of go through there as a central hub. I'm um, just trying to whistle through a few more here before we say farewell. Uh, Lance Snyder, you sent in one um, about a remake of the Monty Python, the Holy Grail, and naming drivers. Maybe send that one back in, brother. My brain is not doing abstract stuff very well. Uh, let's see. Kyle Donnelly, you ask about Airwake. You hear about the Airwake from one car affecting the next one negatively in Speedway trim. Uh, is there a difference between the wake off a diffuser versus a wing? You're asking about if the car had more rear wing and no diffuser. Would the nature of the arrow wake give the falling car a better chance pulling up close? No, uh, would it would not, unfortunately. Um, the bigger the wing sticking out, sticking up into the airstream, uh, the more drag, the less speed you're going to make. So, yeah, uh, making the majority of the downforce beneath the car the underwing and diffuser is really important in doing that so that you can minimize the size of the rear wing, uh, front wing as well. So, yeah, because of, call it the underbody downforce that's being made, that allows the cars to use smaller surface wings and therefore create more speed. The, the wake is really exacerbated by the width and size of the car and the turbulence coming off of the rear tires. So, again, something that I've mentioned a few times before, but always happy to mention it. Indy cars got prettier when the rear wheel guards came off after 2017. Uh, Aesthetically, far more beautiful. There was a definite penalty that came with it, and that is drag. And that is, while those rear wheel pods, nicknamed Kardashians, certainly did not please the eye, uh, they were very powerful and effective in cleaning up the airflow uh, around coming off the wheels and tires, uh, but also just coming off the back of the car altogether. So improve the look by getting rid of them in working and fighting to improve the aero wake and wash uh, coming off and how it affects the trailing cars as a result. So, yeah, uh, John Wojnar one of the leaders of the Day listener group here, secret listener group, which y'all can join if you want. Um, I just, I'm not a member and I don't know how. Uh, I wouldn't, yeah, they shouldn't have me as a member of that for sure. So I know you can't talk much about J.R. Hildebrand's Pikes Peak attempt, but hypothetically, if you were setting up an IndyCar to attempt, uh, attempt it, what changes would you need to hypothetically make? Well, there's a lot of elevation, so that's something to consider from a mapping standpoint, from an engine standpoint, having turbos uh, is certainly not a bad thing, but you start running out of super oxygen-rich air as you get higher in the mountain. So the engine mapping would be, uh, I would say, before you even get to the chassis stuff, that would be the big area to focus on because you need a motor that can adapt uh, going way, way up the hill with a serious change in the amount of oxygen being fed into the motor from the bottom of the hill to the top of the hill so that's one uh chassis wise yeah it's a bit of a weird thing where there are some high speed stretches that are really cool but if you look at most of the layout there's a lot of hairpins there's a lot of turning sharp turning going on i would say if i had to take a setup approach and hopefully JR and I can talk about this sometime soon, I'd probably be leaning more towards a street course 
type setup. If, if you think of the hairpin that completes uh, the Long Beach circuit, final corner at the track, the hairpin there, I'm not saying they're all as tight as that, but there's a ton of those type of corners where you have to slow down a lot, rotate the car a ton, and re-accelerate, meaning you're not carrying a lot of flowing speed through it. You are having to stop, turn, and go again. You have to do that a ton and turn a lot. So I would say uh, steering rack, fast steering rack to make those turns would be one of the things for sure. But yeah, probably a little bit more ride height and probably a little bit softer than would be optimal. But with, again, assuming they would stay connected, the uh, third third spring arrangements would help a little bit in terms of controlling the uh, the vehicle's aero platform on those higher speed, faster, you know, third, fourth, fifth, sixth gear, more fifth, fourth, fifth, sixth type stretches um, while still allowing the car to be a bit roly-poly and move as needed in the first, second, and third gear stuff. So that's very, very general there. Uh, where else do we go before we say goodbye? Last week, apparently, I mentioned something about space helium, and uh, a couple people want me to explain what it is. I would just say that uh, if you don't know Lance Snyder, now you know. Um, I'd say that's about it. Um, I could probably answer a lot. I mean, I've got a Zachary Clayman DeMello question. Santino Ferrucci's IndyCar budget versus NASCAR budget, uh, and plenty of other things. Preci, you got a question about engine control strategies. Send those in for next week, and uh, if you want me to get to them. Other than that, uh, I'm Marshall Pruitt. Someone's car alarm's going off outside. I don't have any cats here right now, which is good. Uh, I'm going to say goodbye, farewell, and thank you. And thanks once again to great questions. They're a lot of fun. I do look forward to this each week. And also massive thank you to Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and TorontoMotorsports.com. Oh, by the way, our guest this week, Simon Pagino. 